0: Anyone who spends more than a moment with their Bible each day will probably encounter a beast. Actually, many of them. Bible writers love to use fanciful creatures to represent very real events and to illustrate prophecies. Our guest today has made a study of those beasts and is here to share some insights into one such critter he came across in Revelation 13. I'll let him explain. Greg Hamilton is the president of the Hamilton Library and Constitution Center in Grand Junction, Colorado. He has written for Liberty Magazine and has been a guest on this program many times. I always look forward to what he has to say. Greg, welcome back to LifeQuest Liberty. Thanks, Charles. I really appreciate it. This program is sponsored by Liberty Magazine. Okay, let's talk beasts. What did you discover in Revelation 13, and what do we need to know today?
1: Well, the Protestant Reformers always referred to the beast as a kingdom Mm -hmm. and a power, Mm -hmm. and referred to the part of Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10, which is the first half, always referred to this beast that the whole world wondered after and was astonished by. Verse 2, the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. The dragon, according to Revelation 12, is Satan. Specifically, it says Lucifer, Satan, that great angel from heaven who fell. So Satan did inspired this beast, according to Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, John Knox... William Farrell, all the famous Protestant reformers referred to this beast as Rome or Papal Rome, the papacy, Mm -hmm. or you could say the Holy Roman Empire in which popes basically manipulated, dominated, and controlled the will of kings and emperors. For 1260 years, we're told, in prophecy, that's very important to know because during the Dark Ages, in the medieval era, all the way clear up to 1798 when Emperor Napoleon stripped the power, the plenipotentiary power of the Catholic Church, which is the Holy See. It didn't affect the Church, but the Holy See, which is the political wing of the Vatican. And therefore, ambassadors were withdrawn from the countries in Europe, and they were withdrawn. And likewise, ambassadors that were representing those countries to the Vatican were withdrawn. And so that political wing received a deadly wound which we see in verse 10, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, he will be killed. In other words, those who try to wield the sword of the state, which the Church had done Mm -hmm. for 1,260 years, it would receive this mortal wound. Well, this mortal wound, again, was the hit that it took in terms of its political power. It received a mortal wound, and Pope Pius VI, who had been arrested and captured by General Berthier, sent by Napoleon, Of course, he rotted and died in a cell, and yet the church went on unabated because the college of the cardinals met, and they elected their next pope. I thought, well, where's the wound? And then I discovered later the wound was that the ambassadors, the envoys, the nuncios, they're called, were withdrawn. It lost its political power, that wing of the Vatican that people don't seem to understand. And the next pope styled himself as Pope Pius VII, and in 1804, the famous scene in Notre Dame, Napoleon snatches the crown, the golden wreath, out of the hands of Pope Pius VII and crowns himself, basically saying, hey, you guys have no jurisdiction over me. I'm going to crown myself. And no longer does the church have jurisdiction over kings or emperors or control over them or could dictate their will had no authority over them, so he took the crown out of his hands and crowned himself. Then he proceeded to crown his wife, Josephine, as empress. Mm. That represents basically the first ten verses of Revelation 13.
0: Well, Greg, that's all fine and good, but why? Why did God take the time to impress upon John the Revelator those scenes? I mean, that happened a long time after Christ left this earth and a long time before we showed up. Why do we need to know this stuff?
1: Well, to know that God has a timetable, that he is coming. We don't know the exact time of his coming, but it demonstrates the nearness of his coming, his second coming, the doctrine of the second coming, I would call it. Clearly, it gives human beings hope that God's not totally estranged from his creation, that he's watching over affairs of men, and and things have to play out, and things are playing out. It's very interesting because some of the basics of prophecy are often overlooked. The reason why I say this is because how many times do people come up with conspiracy theories on how the world's going to come to an end, or how we're going to have a Sunday law, and oh, the Sunday law is coming as if the Sunday law replaces Christ's second coming itself, as if that's the most important thing to look for. Yes. And the problem I have with that is you read about Martin Luther, all you have to do is read the Prophetic Faith for Fathers, four volumes by Leroy Edward Froome. They all study the scriptures for prophecy to determine basically what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And they all came up with their theories. It became like a sport. Who could come up with the... Mm-hmm. The most innovative ideas, and the latest one that's come out by some individuals, is this idea, well, the Pope, oh well, Francis I, the current Pope, came out with this climate encyclical, and this is going to pave the way for a Sunday law. And I thought, you know, why is it that we always make the papacy the number one entity? Because when we get to Revelation 13, the second half of the chapter, the Pope is a not only a wounded power, but when the wound is healed, which hasn't healed yet, we'll discuss that, it's impotent. It's constantly beset with scandals. The conservative and liberal divide is so stark that it's pretty much crippled the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is losing in big numbers, losing members to Pentecostals and Protestant movements in South America and Central America, throughout Africa. And so the church is crippled. It's not powerful like it used to be. Oh, it's true that John Paul II, when he came along, the pope then that served for 28 years, he took the papacy from literally 32 envoys in 32 countries. So it increased 187 countries, from 32 to 187 in 23 years. So he's he's considered the most significant pope in, in papal history, and you can see why. I mean, Stalin used to say, well, what armies do the Pope have? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. has political influence. Yes. That's great. But since then, it seems that the Catholic Church has been wandering in the wilderness. Mm. And so it's it's got the pedophilia scandals. It's got the constant problem of, you know, how to deal with women in the priesthood and, and everything else. It's, it's just got to be set by all kinds of problems. And also the same-sex marriage issue. And homosexuals, how do they deal with that? Who receives communion? Do presidents who are pro-choice, do they suddenly get cut off from communion? Conservatives say yes, liberals say no. There's this constant problem that doesn't seem to unify. Of course, I have my own theory. I've always said that the Catholic Church, and Martin Luther used to even say this, if the Catholic Church and the Pope were to put forth an edict that their priests could marry... (laughs) <laughs> that would pretty much mm-hmm. heal the wound yes, <laughs> in yes, some respect, yeah. because it would become popular, and the whole world would wonder after the beast again. And this particular pope is trying to get there. Mm-hmm. He started with some pygmies and some native people down in South America in the Amazon to marry because there was no other priest to marry and so forth. Because they had, you know, they had to do it as part of their tradition down there and so forth. And so they, they, he allowed that. And so it was like a first opening salvo, and many Catholics really opposed that vehemently. Mm-hmm. But it was like, like a foot in the door, so to speak. So we'll see where that goes. In the meantime, you get to Revelation thirteen eleven, and you see this other beast coming up, and it appears lamb-like. But he speaks like a dragon, so he's a paradox. He appears to be like an angel wrapped in angel's robes, but is like a, like a ravening beast or a ravening wolf or like a lion seeking mm-hmm. to devour mm-hmm. the wolf in sheep's clothing, so to speak. So it's lamb-like, but it speaks like a dragon. The word speak in the original biblical language, the original Greek here, means to enact or have authority, which means legislative power or edict power. Mm-hmm. My point is this. Many times we elevate the papacy as being look to the papacy for last day events. Ever just you've gotta look at a magnifying put a magnifying glass on the papacy to determine what's going on. When in fact when we do that we lose sight of the fact that chapter thirteen verses eleven to fifteen talks about the rise of the last superpower on earth, the United States. Mm. And what gives that impetus, what was the power, what was the founding of that? It was the Puritan founding. It was basically Protestant America. It's evangelical America that's being described here. It becomes the new beast. It supplants the papacy in terms of the most powerful religious power, which also happens to be within the most powerful country in the world. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so it becomes the new Rome, and a lot of people don't see that. We always seem to assume that the papacy is the all-powerful one. We have to look to the papacy. No, it's still wounded and it's still incapacitated. And who leads the way? It's Protestant America. And we see this especially in Pentecostal movements in this country who the Pentecostal movement, even though Protestantism overall is declining, the group that is emerging as all-powerful and controlling of legislators and senators and presidents even. They, they prophesied that uh, the last president would be reelected, and of course that didn't happen. So they're having to recalculate everything, and so on and so forth. And it's fascinating; it's all very fascinating, but it's all part of this this rise of evangelical Protestant America that becomes the new Rome. And how does it become the new Rome? Because it seeks to control the government in a way so that the government will put forward its agenda or its edicts or its it's doctrines, it's morality, and punish anybody else who is deemed a heretic. That's where this country's headed. We're it's all the, the foundation and seeds of authoritarianism in this country. <laughs>
0: time has flown by, Greg. Can I have you come back and we continue this conversation on our next program? Would you do that for us? Absolutely. All right. Listen, this is Greg Hamilton. He is the president of the Hamilton Library and Constitution Center in Grand Junction, Colorado. He has written for Liberty Magazine and has been a guest on this program. And we want to continue this conversation about Revelation 13 and the not one, but two beasts that we need to know about. And we're going to talk about that second beast more in depth when we come back on our next program. Greg, thank you so much for sharing with us today. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. And listener, we have a website for you, www.libertymagazine.org. A lot of good resources there to continue your journey of understanding and insights into these issues that face us about religious liberty in this country and around the world. This program was sponsored by Liberty Magazine. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Greg Hamilton inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about LifeQuest Liberty, call 443-391-7258, or email us through our website at libertymagazine.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of liberty burning in your heart today.